So Colossians in chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. And as I mentioned last time uh, I spoke, chapters 3 and 4 are the practicalities of the, of the book, uh, and they follow on from the two chapters of doctrine which we've already looked at. Uh, so we'll read Colossians in chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. <clears throat> Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, <clears throat> sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul is very direct and straightforward in presenting his practical truths in this passage. He gives a list of things to put to death. Uh, or other translations may say to mortify, but it all means the same thing, uh, which is to kill. And positionally, that has been done. When we come to Jesus Christ and receive him as our saviour, when we confess our sins and are born again, God, as an act of sovereign power, kills the old life and gives us new life. Uh, But that has to work itself out in us practically, uh, in our everyday lives. What God has done positionally, what God has done in reference to our state in Christ, we need to work out in our own practice. We have been made dead to sin. We have died to the old life. We have been crucified with Christ. All of that is dead and we live a new life. Uh, We live a risen life, but we need to reflect all of that in a practical way and that involves the practical killing of some features of that old life and what uh, uh, that still wants to hang on. So positionally, we have already died spiritually. Uh, We have died to self, died to self-will, died to our own ambitions, died to our own pride. Uh, We have done that positionally, but we have to continue to do it practically. Uh, So Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, has demonstrated powerfully the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We see, particularly in the first chapter and through the second chapter, how Paul presents the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Then we saw in the second chapter that he says believers are not to feel intimidated or threatened by those people who come along and say, uh, you can't just have Christ, you also have to have philosophy. Uh, Or you you just can't have Christ, you also have to have legalism. Uh, Or not just Christ, but also visions and higher knowledge. Uh, Or also uh, not just Christ, but also uh, rigorous self-denial. All the way through, Paul keeps saying Christ is all, uh, that you are complete in Christ. Nothing else will lead you to salvation. Nothing else will lead you to spirituality except Christ. Uh, That you've been given new life, he says in chapter 3. And now he says, focus on the heavenlies and live, uh, live that new life. Cut the cords to the earth and live the heavenly life. Let your practice match your position. Paul says the first step is to start killing some things in your life. Jesus said something similar when he said to take up your cross. For the Christian, this is a daily activity, saying no to self, no to self-desire, no to the things of the world. We will never be able to uh, focus on our heavenly calling and really live the risen life until we die to the world and die uh, to the things that are in it. A radical kind of thing has to take place. 
we are in the heavenlies by inheritance, uh, by right, but we will never really walk there until we begin to kill some things in this world. Verse number five says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That is the preliminary statement for what is coming. The words put to death here are written as a once for all, to the point in your life where you make a definite commitment to these things, that they're going to happen. You're going to put them out of your life. Uh, there, there have been many people who misinterpreted this and they have interpreted it in a very physical way. Uh, they have felt that Paul is saying to injure yourself. And John MacArthur spoke of a time where he says that, uh, he says this, I met a man one time, in fact, I had a car accident. When the man was coming to settle the insurance, he was telling me about his experience with God, uh, telling me what a righteous man he was and what a religious man he was. Uh, and John asked him, well, on what basis do you say that and he replied because I wear a special belt a belt with nails in it under my clothes and I never take it off it continues to cut and tear up my middle and he asked him why do you wear this and he said because I'm killing the flesh I'm suffering for my sins now that isn't what Paul is talking about here and it would be similar to taking the statement of Jesus in Matthew where he says if your right eye offends you pluck it out and throw it away, for it is better that one of your members should perish so that your whole body doesn't get cast into hell. Uh, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. And I'm sure people have taken that uh, literally and followed it throughout history. Uh, but Jesus was misunderstood there, and Paul uh, has been misunderstood here often. He is not calling for some kind of asceticism. Uh, we saw that he just got through saying that this isn't uh, the issue at the end of chapter 2. Uh, he's calling for the elimination of of everything from our lives that is against God. Uh, to clarify what he is saying, we can compare one verse uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, he says this, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What he means is, uh, in killing is not killing the body, but killing the deeds of the body. If you kill the deeds of the sinful nature... You kill the deeds of the fleshly nature. Then we really begin to experience spiritual life, a heavenly life, in the way that God intended. The Christian has to deal with self-centeredness, private desires and personal ambitions, and there must be a radical slaying of these things. All of us realise sooner or later when we become Christians, and maybe some of us are new Christians and haven't really felt the full impact of it, uh, but you're not a Christian very long before you realise that all of a sudden there is a tremendous daily struggle. Uh, the struggle that goes on within your new nature is the effort of your new, uh, your new nature to live the heavenly life and all of a sudden you find that there is something holding you back. Uh, it's all these things that are part of the old nature and they have to be killed while we battle with our old, old selves. Although we are new creatures on the inside, we have to struggle with the old outside. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans in chapter 6. Uh, this is a pas passage which most parallels this one. Uh, so Romans in chapter 6. And looking at verse 11. So Paul has just carefully discussed the fact of positional death in verses 1 to 10 and how we came to Christ when we died to the old life. And he says in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he says you are dead 
positionally and you can count on it. And then he makes the practical statement in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 10 says you are dead. Verse 11 says to realize it. And verse 12 says to do something about it. And verse 13 says how to do this. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul gives us some lists of things to kill in Colossians 3. Uh, It's a very simple thing in some ways, yet in terms of a command, it's a lot harder to carry out. The lists are good for us because uh, these are the things that are the most troublesome sins. Uh, These are sample sins. The Bible gets very specific right from the Ten Commandments when God talks about sin. He talks in very clear specifics. He gives two lists, one in verse 5 and the other in verse 8. The first list speaks about unholy kinds of love. The second list, wicked kinds of hate. So they are set in contrast. The first is perverted love, the second is wicked hate. The first list begins with acts and moves to motives. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Uh, This refers to unlawful sexual relationships. It goes beyond just a man and a woman in in a relationship and covers any any kind of forbidden act in this realm. And we can trace God's attitude towards this all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, this kind of evil was punished with death. God's attitude hasn't changed. His action towards us uh, is different in this age, but his attitude hasn't changed. Uh, Any evil in this realm is to be killed, to be put away. The second word listed is impurity, and this is to do with the thoughts. In other words, evil thoughts. It is essentially what Jesus said in Matthew, a man who looks on a woman and lusts after her has committed adultery in his heart. It's that evil thought that is behind the evil deed. It's when it gets right up front and it becomes a dominating thought. And that is precisely what Jesus meant in Mark chapter 7 and verse 21, where he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Adultery and fornication comes from the evil thought pattern. That's why in Colossians, in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, let the word of Christ be the controlling influence in your mind. Uh, So we see impure deeds come from impure thoughts. And you have to expect unclean deeds in a society that is dominated by unclean thinking. In verse 5, it says, Sexual sin comes from evil thoughts. Uh, And he uses two terms here, passion and evil desire. It's very hard to distinguish those two terms. Uh, They must have meant something with with a small degree of meaning to the Greek, uh, but we don't really know what the difference between those two terms is today. So Paul says the process is this. Sexual passion creates evil thoughts, creating evil deeds. And it's a very simple sequence. We see a society of people driven by passion, driven by evil desire. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 4, calls to Christians and says, Don't operate in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. They go beyond and defraud their brothers. In other words, sexually they assault each other. Uh, They're just out for what they can get. They take advantage of somebody. Uh, They're just out 
uh, to get what they can get. There's no commitment. And that is typical of the world system. Uh, It's down deep in the depraved heart of a man. Uh, There's a smouldering passion. That smouldering passion gets fanned. That evil desire grows and creates an evil thought. The evil thought creates an evil deed. Uh, It's always the brooding evil desire that generates any sin. But going down to the base of it all, we find uh, the last term of the list in verse 5, which is covetousness. And this is the root of it all. Covetousness is desiring what is forbidden. Uh, Jesus considered the covetous heart to be the root from which comes the evil deed. You see something, you don't have it, you want it. You lust and you war to get it. It all comes down to what covetousness really is, which is idolatry. A simple definition uh, is this. In your life, as you live, you either worship God or you worship yourself. If you truly worship God as God, then you ask him what pleases him and you do it. If you don't, you say, self, what pleases you? And you bow at the shrine of self and do it. In order to get at the core of sin, Paul is teaching us the fact that if you're going to kill Don't just whack the branches. Get down to the root of the problem, which is basically setting up yourself as someone to be worshipped over God. The Greek word for covetousness is plionexia, which is from two words. Plion means more, and exia means to have, to have more. It means more than just that. It means to have what isn't yours to have, to have the forbidden thing. In fact, the, Greek, the, uh, the Greeks themselves defined plionexia as insatiable desire. And one Greek writer said you might, have, uh, you might as easily satisfy it as to fill a bowl with a hole in it. It, it can't be satisfied and it is a twin to pride. I want what I want for me. Uh, so we see the full progression here. The root sin of man is idolatry. That is, he struggles to worship himself And God just gets in the way of that. There is that tremendous desire to fulfill himself uh, and to meet his own needs and to pander to his own desires. He's covetous. In that covetousness is a deep desire for what is forbidden. And under the right circumstances of temptation, it rises to a passion. It creates an evil thought and surfaces in an evil deed. Here the Apostle Paul is teaching in Colossians chapter 3 saying, Uh, that we need to get down to the root of the issue and what we need to kill is covetousness. The best way to kill covetousness is with contentedness, learning to say what Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Contentedness for all that God has given us, not wanting any more money, not wanting more than your spouse, not wanting any more than the singleness he has given you for this time, not wanting a car, a house, a boat, or anything that God uh, has given us. Contentedness will kill covetousness. Contentedness is found by trusting God. And the way to trust God is to get to know him. The more you know him, the more you will find out uh, that he can be trusted. And the way to get to know God is to study his truth, because it reveals him. Colossians uh, chapter 3 and verse 8 begins the second list. And it says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The first listed is anger. This word means a deep, down, smouldering, resenting bitterness, slow burning, 
This is the angry person. It's always there. All you need to do is fan it. Uh, you might have heard uh, people say, every time I think of that, it makes me furious. Up it comes. It's been smouldering all that time. And then he uses another term, and he's moving from a deep down, out. He starts with that smouldering, and then it gives way to wrath. The word wrath in verse 8 uh, is tumus, uh, which means blazing. Uh, the Greek said it's like setting a fire in, a, in straw. Uh, tumus is when you flame. It quickly burns out and it's over with. But what Paul is talking about here is that there is a smouldering anger down in the heart of men. There are problems in their lives and it just takes certain things to fire up. One of the things that Christ wants to deal with uh, is that basic discontentment. Then when anger turns into wrath, then it leads to another thing, and that is the, uh, the word here in verse 8, malice, uh, which would perhaps be better translated evil speaking. The concept here is that you have a smouldering, resenting anger. It flames itself into a blaze, and out of the mouth it comes. And what comes out of the mouth here in verse 8? is slander or blasphemy. In relation to God, it's blasphemy. And in relation to men, it's often translated slander. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, it's that serious. There is another thing that results in an evil deed coming up out of this angry, wrathful, evil speaking is not only going to be slander, but it's going to be obscene talk. Uh, it's the same that is talked of in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 29. Rotten talk. Uh, the word is sapros, which means rotten. Ephesians 4:29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Say what is edifying, necessary and gracious, and don't say anything else. There is no reason for filthy communication. Jesus said in Matthew 12, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And 12 verse 35, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Paul gives us these lists of sins which as Christians we are to kill, to remove from our lives as they are part of our old selves. He teaches us to deal with the root cause of our sin which is idolatry and to find contentment through reading the Bible and learning who God is and through trusting him and finding him trustworthy. Uh, turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and we'll finish by reading verses 6 to 10. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 4 uh, and verses 6 to 10, which says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, 
who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe.